Welcome to Victory Over Self Radio, a podcast that dives into all things athletics. On today's episode, we have Blair, Chris, and myself recap the Coach's Site Live hockey clinic that Chris attended. We dive into conditioning, team leadership, and hockey practice and training. Chris and Blair both have a ton of experience with hockey. Chris currently trains Liberty University's hockey teams, and Blair grew up uh, playing hockey at a high level and is from Canada, so you know he knows a lot about hockey in the first place. He also spent time training teams at Liberty and coaching as well. As always, if you like the show, like and share. If there's anybody or topics you'd like us to discuss, please let us know. Enjoy the show. All right, fellas. So just like uh, you two, as we are in the constant pursuit of bettering ourselves, I ended up in a wild situation last week where I was sitting in an auditorium and I said to myself, what am I doing here? So I, I told you guys a little bit about it, but it was the Coaches Site Live conference. And so the Coaches Site is a super popular hockey kind of drills, tactical uh, playbook type of website. So almost every hockey coach I know at Liberty is on there once a week, just trying to like steal stuff and think of it like simply faster, but for like hockey only uh, and on ice. And so I'm sitting there and I'm going like, man, what am I doing here? I am the weight room guy. So I felt super out of place, um, kind of, you know, imposter syndrome. But yeah, guys, it was an unreal conference. I got to go up with uh, five of our uh, coaches in, in total at Liberty. So kind of represented a lot of our hockey teams. And then, yeah, it was an unreal event. So it was kind of funny. The very first speaker at the conference kind of put me at ease. It was uh, Sean Bormitt, who is actually the Michigan wrestling coach. So the conference was in Ann Arbor uh, at the University of Michigan. And so to have him like kick things off and lead it, I was like, all right, that makes me feel a little bit better. And then his quote was, in order to win, we must be fiercely competitive to learn what you need to know. And then I was like, all right, that's why I'm there. All right, so I'm the weight room guy, but anytime you could be around these high-level coaches, it's just unreal. And they're there for a reason, so we just got to kind of take it and, and kind of run with it. But I, I guess, like, a question to you guys is, have you attended anything, or um, what other kind of areas in your life do you sort of take away from outside of the uh, sports performance world? Oh man, I was a hockey guy. Um, yeah. and I haven't, haven't been to any hockey conferences, always wanted to go to one, but, uh, you know, just from playing and, and being around coaches all the time, you just try and be a sponge, Yeah, especially, uh, you know, the, the, the better, it's, it's not always the better performing team, but you know, when you have, see those teams where the you can just tell it's it's a well coached machine. We've been out coached, you know, in my hockey career many times, and you can just see what the coach is doing, and you know, you kind of see like, oh man, that'd be nice too. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, Ross, you got anything? I mean, other than from coaching coaching multiple sports at the high school level and. Uh, being able to, you know, see the stuff that we do 
in a weight room and see it on the field. I mean, when you're pulling stuff away from the different books you're reading, whether it's leadership books, nutrition books, all that kind of stuff, I mean, you got to pull away from a bunch of different topics that are, at the end of the day, they are going to help you help you be a better coach. But man, I can I can only imagine when you're going to uh, to a conference like that with all the the hockey coaches, the professional guys, college guys, and whoever else, when uh, if you work with a ton of hockey, especially as the the weight room guy and being able to hear those different coaches talk. And, and I think, and Chris, you can obviously elaborate on it. I think it'd be interesting to hear how the different coaches looked at the weight room or looked at the training and what they kind of valued and what they pushed their coaches to do. Because as we know, different sport coaches want different things uh, from their strength coach versus uh maybe what we want it might be a little different but be curious if that was something you ran into up there yeah it's a great point it uh it was kind of affirming where you have a lot of sports performance strength conditioning guys with differing opinions and thoughts and things that they value and i mean with the coaches that were there it was spanning all the levels so there were Multiple NHL teams represented, uh, Coyotes, the Knights, the Senators, the Kraken, uh, a, a, a former NHL guy was there. I don't know if he was a big deal or not, named Mike Babcock, I think I'm saying that correctly. <laughs> Just kidding, yeah. I know he was, uh, Pretty big deal. He was a, big, a big dog. Uh, the Rangers, the Red Wings, they also had a ton of European coaches from Germany, Sweden, and lots of colleges represented, uh, Michigan, obviously, Vermont, Princeton, Ryerson tons of uh, AAA and junior organizations and then some private sector guys. And so to your question there, Ross, how some strength coaches are the Olympic lift guys, some are not. It was interesting that some of the coaches were long distance running guys and then some were not. And I just thought it, yeah, it was affirming to know that even at some of the highest levels and these teams that, you know, on paper, everybody looks up to, even, you know, they, they want to watch him on TV that to me, it really has to come down to the head coach and the players that get recruited. Like there's a lot of ways to get there and there's a lot of different training methods. And as long as the head coach is leading the team well, and you have the right group of athletes, you're going to find success. That was kind of one of the takeaways. So for example, Earlier on in the conference, uh, it was three days, tons of speakers. And one of the first speakers was like, you have to make it hard. Why Why does everybody want to be a Navy SEAL? Because it has this allure around it of being hard. It's difficult. It's like, so you need to make your practices. You need to make your team uh, have challenges and make it difficult. And he showed videos of like mili- military style training. And for me, I'm just like, Ugh, no, that's the opposite of what I want. And then another coach was saying how, yeah, our team's going to run a 5K every single week where we're going to test the beep test every week, once a month, something like that. And again, for me, with a sprint-based focus and emphasis, again, it's just like, ugh, no. But then there were also some coaches that were kind of on my level or my path, speed first, sprint-based. So yeah, it was wild. It was wild to see how at the highest levels, they still have those 
differing opinions, just like you know you you guys and I do with uh, whether it's to squat bilateral or to squat unilateral. That I thought that was really interesting. Chris, do you think? Uh, I guess this is kind of a two parter, but do you think that one the long distance kind of guys were more of the old school type coaches, the older guys? Was that something you noticed? It was a perfect even split, actually. And I thought I would hear it more from the European coaches. And I got to talk to uh, Cam Abbott with, I can't say his team's name. I'm going to call it Rogel BK. Uh, They're in the Swedish Hockey League. They just won the championship. And I got to talk a little bit of training with him. And he's a North American, so he actually said how he tries to get his guys away from the long distance stuff, which I was like, okay, awesome. But one of our kind of like oldest coaches was all about the long distance or at least the hard. And then one of the younger kind of upstarting coaches at the college level was also about it. So I wonder more if it's just who you've been around and who you've been influenced by, right? Like if, uh, if we did an internship for a coach who's all about the Olympic lifts, most likely we're going to have an Olympic lift dominant type of program. Yeah. If we uh, intern or work with a guy who's sprint based, we'll probably have that. So yeah, it was kind of a, a, a split almost Blair. Yeah. I always ran into, you know, guys I played with, you know, or played against guys I knew like somewhere in the weight room, you know, bodybuilding, whatever, mm-hmm some were just out running all summer, you know, long distance. And, you know, obviously sprinkling a little bit of that in there isn't such a bad thing, but, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm on the same page where, you know, speed kills and the yeah. ability that uh, repeatability of sprinting is going to mm-hmm. be, you know, dominant. Um but yeah, it's always interesting. the The long distance running is kind of a head scratcher, I think, for me. Yeah, and I mean, you had a few coaches kind of talk about it, so it's just it's just interesting. I really just think it kind of comes down to you have to have a, a solid head coach who can inspire the athletes, and you have to have the right group of athletes to to be successful, right? That's that's no surprise and it's no shocker, but. I think really that's kind of what it comes down to how, how much of an impact do, do we really make off the ice, off the court, off the field? I think we definitely contribute to the culture of the team. Uh, We could help foster that. Uh, We could also destroy it, but yeah, you gotta, gotta align yourself with a good coach and you'll, you'll be fine. One thing I remember from watching training videos of uh, Europeans and you know, maybe it's just central to you know, Russia or Sweden or mm-hmm. somewhere, but I remember always seeing them doing so many jumps. Yeah. Just jump after jump after jump. And I was thinking like, man, that's a lot of jumping. Especially but. with hockey players with just, you know, bad ankles, bad feet, uh, bad knees, bad hips. Right. It's a lot of, a lot of extra kind of wear and tear, but yeah, it's a, uh, there's, more, more than one way to get to your destination, I guess. And different things work for different teams and different coaches yeah. at, at different times. And it was interesting. A lot of the coaches, right? Again, the coaches at the highest levels, 
really kind of just harped in on that like buy-in uh making sure that your entire team is kind of united on something and they touched on like reverse engineering so start with the end goal in mind and then break it into tiny parts and have your like team or have your captains be influential in kind of making the decisions for how to how to go so one of our uh one of the speakers name was john bacon he's an author and he published a book called let them lead and basically was like hey make sure you're involving your team in all of these decisions like your players aren't dumb they'll be able to kind of figure it out and uh when that team kind of has that buy-in i i I think that makes a, a huge difference as well yeah, I can remember our coaches giving, like having captain's meetings, you know, and kind of sharing that responsibility with the captains. I don't remember a lot of times where, you know, it was kind of like a, you know, democracy where the whole team is together making a decision. But I can always remember coaches sitting down with captains, sometimes being part of those. Um, and, you know, I think there's a ton of value in that as far as like getting buy-in, you know. Yeah. Obviously, it helps too when the you know the captains of the team are well respected, and guys want to listen to them. So I I think for all of us, we've been uh, correct me if I'm wrong. While we were all at Liberty, we've been a part of a team that's either won a national championship or at least made it to the final game of the year, right? Whether we were on the team in your case, Blair, or uh, coaching in the weight room for you and I, Ross, um, Ross and Blair, what were some of the big kind of takeaways from that team or that coaching staff that you could remember? Uh, I'm interested to see if what you guys think or say kind of lines up with some of the things I was hearing from, uh, the coaches at the conference. I'll kind of circle around because I was going to ask you a question, Blair, with hockey and the captains, but I'll, I'll circle back to it. Um, I know at least at, with Liberty and say like working with wrestling and a couple of the other teams, any of those really high level teams, at least the ones that were finishing at the end and that were winning in the end, uh, I always felt had a one had a really strong leadership component from within the team, uh, whether it was guys holding people accountable girls holding everyone accountable. There was some sort of focal point as far as there was a couple guys that, that could maneuver and lead that, that team. And then on top of that, their coaching staff their whether it was their head coach or their assistants, they were strong leaders and they were, were respected, but they were also coaching at a high level and running things in a super, super smart way. And I, and with those with those coaches in particular, I thought they always did a really good job of letting the people that are experts in what they do do what they do best and listening to them and taking the advice that, hey, you know, this is what I think for this. Not saying you've got to you don't have to do that, you know, follow that direction every single time. But it's when I've got people that know more about a certain topic than me, I, I want to hear their hear their ideas and how they can blend. Uh, into our practice plan or different things like that. But yeah, Chris, I think to answer that question, it would, it would just be the captains and the leadership. And then Blair, I would, I would ask you, cause I actually had this conversation with our football coach this week of whether or not, obviously this is high school, so it's all relative. And I think college is a little different, 
um, of whether or not a coach should should pick captains or players are voting for captains. Now, I think in high school, you typically get kind of a popularity contest of most popular kid on the team is going to be chosen as a captain versus maybe who the the actual leader is. And I've always, just from watching hockey and not being a hockey expert, there's seems to be this massive uh, respect and whatnot for your captains and your assistant captains and all that stuff. Um, so Blair, with your teams and your experience, one, was it typically a player-appointed thing? Was it typically a coach-appointed thing? And then through your experiences, why do you think within hockey, if you agree with me, why do you think within hockey there's such a, a respect for that? Uh, well, within hockey, I think, especially having, you know, one captain and then maybe a couple of, of alternates, you have usually a guy who's really earned it. It's not usually a popularity thing. You know, some, some coaches will choose to have the team vote. Um, a lot of coaches will, will pick their captain, um, because they want someone who exemplifies exemplifies that that leadership that they want but i think that it's 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 almost always an earned role it's not always the guy who's got the most goals the most assists um but it's someone who shift in and out is gonna lead the team and you know sacrifice their body whatever they gotta do um that's usually the case I don't know. It probably, I feel like, you know, it's relative to the sport, but um, that's what I've seen. A lot of the captains that I played with were just guys who guys wanted to hang around off the ice. They wanted and trusted them to be on the ice when it mattered. And, you know, they didn't make a lot of stupid mistakes. They, they really um, played for the team. And I saw that when I when I lost two national championships, uh, one playing and one coaching. But I saw that too uh, when we had success at nationals. So um, it, it's 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 one of those things. It's uh, a well earned role. And to touch on those teams that you played for and coached, those are some phenomenal leaders that you yeah. had at the captain role there. Uh, speaking on captains, it was interesting. And tell me if this is part of hockey culture, Blair. Uh, so I'm going to talk about this guy a bunch, uh, John Bacon. His kind of background and story is he wrote wrote the book, Let Them Lead. And I think in the year 2000, he took over literally the worst hockey team, high school hockey team in America. Like they were ranked like 1,256 out of like 1,256, something like that. So he called it like uh, the the Mighty Ducks, Mighty Ducks meet Ted Lasso. <laughs> like he was a terrible high school hockey player. He didn't score a point throughout like his entire career of high school hockey. And now he's going to take over his high school team who like hasn't won a game in three years. And they're the worst high school hockey team and then three years later they competed in the national or the state championship which is wild it's hmm. a crazy story but 
he was telling a, a story of they just lost the championship and he walks back into the locker room and everyone's still dressed because apparently whether it's hockey culture or his team, no one got like uh, took their pads off until the captain started. So is that a thing uh, Blair in hockey culture or is that just per- perhaps for that team? Like no one could take their shin pads off or whatever until the, the captain did. Not necessarily the captain per se, but I've, sat in the locker room for, you know, a good chunk of time after losing a big game um, with my gear on. It's just like, I don't know. I can remember it for as long as, as I've been playing hockey that, you know, there was always guys who would just leave it on as long as they could. Um, I remember uh, playing junior hockey and we lost uh, a playoff game one year. And one of the the vets who was his last year, 20 year old aging out and he was in his gear for like two and a half hours. I was, you know, had my gear on for a bit sitting there, you know, depressed, whatever, and hit the showers, hanging out with the guys in our, our, you know, lounge area and whatever, come back to the locker room to grab something. And he's still sitting there, you know, shoulder pads up by his ears, just stewing in it. Um, so not necessarily waiting for the captain, although that's a good sign of respect, yeah. I think. But um, yeah, I've seen that before for sure. Okay. Good. Yeah. No, I, I think we're doing a pretty good job uh, for you and I, Ross, where like, obviously <laughs> I work in hockey, but I don't know hockey. <laughs> we're, we're recapping a hockey coach's clinic here. And I, yeah, we're we're rolling, but I wanted to plug this conference real quick where I was just shocked at how much time these high level coaches gave to me with just like questions, right? I couldn't ask them about their systems. I couldn't ask them really good detailed questions about their presentation, but I was able to ask again coaches who were doing it at the highest level in their field or their sport kind of just like, Hey, how do you balance your family life? Hey, what, what is your best thing? How do you get trust from your players? How do you create your culture? And these guys would sit there for 20, 30 minutes and talk to me. And I was just shocked. So we've all been to a conference where we've all been to an NSCA or CSCCA or something like that, where you just don't have time to talk to these speakers. There's so many people. So I really want to start to plug these smaller, so to speak, conferences like a, a, a TFC, a Track Football Consortium, or even CBAS. And Ross, you said you had uh, an awesome time down at the clinic and you're going to uh, the high school strength conditioning coaches national conference soon, I think, right? Um, Thursday, so baby. Yeah, I, was, I was just kind of blown away at like, oh, perfect. Yeah, wow. there we go. Yeah, I was just blown away at like, you're the you're the big dog in this room and I'm nobody. I don't even coach your sport and here we are talking. So that was pretty cool. But starting to kind of get into the more of the the nitty-gritty so to speak of some of my takeaways. It's been talked about a lot, but I think now in hockey it's just getting hit over the head of your practices have to be made up of stuff that looks like the game. So Blair, I think kind of like gone are the days of 
drills, right? <laughs> the the four blue uh, classic drill where you pass it here, you pass it there, and you come down with no pressure and just take a open shot on the goalie. I guess those are still kind of around in warmups, but yeah, dr- drills are kind of dying out. It seems every single coach there was talking about small area games. And I think that kind of relates across all sports, not just hockey. Uh, Ross, I, I value your opinions for setting up practice plans and layouts because you've coached sports. Uh, so yeah, give me your, give me your thoughts there, guys. Quick example. I can remember spending 30 minutes doing one-on-one, you know, one-on-os, one-on-ones, two-on-ones. And, you know, next thing you know, practice is half over. So (laughs) I'm glad those days are gone because that was a gigantic waste of time. Yeah. And, you know, they talk about, hey, you got to have great shots and warm up too. Never happens. So, you know, it's a a breath of fresh air to hear that. Um, (laughs) The most fun I ever had was playing small ice games Mm because, you know, it was still getting tons of shots, but it's more game, you know, realistic and uh i can remember some of the best practice coaches i had where you know we had a few of those drills to start practice but then you know we're we're doing you know what we called battle drills on wednesdays where the nets are moved close together yes we've got a rope closing everything in so the pucks you know we're not losing as many pucks but you know then it's like you know three on three two on two one on one guys battling it out Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're, you're fighting for the puck in a close, you know, a close area and it's hard for the goalies. That's was my position where we have to react quickly. Like that is way more realistic. We got way more out of that than we ever did any of the other drills where it was just skate down the ice, shoot the puck. Well, I was going to say with, I've always found it uh wild for, from one from coaching lacrosse, which is, Kind of like hockey, but obviously not at the same time, but similar mm-hmm. concepts. Uh, but just from the fact of, like Blair was just saying, whether it's the the one guy on the goal or one-on-ones to goal, I mean, the goalie is getting 100 shots in a very short period of time, and it's just getting absolutely dogged. And then, meanwhile, the offensive guys might have got, you know, 10 shots, and they got a couple minutes between shots, and... And they're feeling great and they're loving it. Meanwhile, the the goalie is sitting in red for thirty minutes straight, and they can't think straight, and this and that, yeah. and 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 that's a perfect situation of trying to make it like a well, not trying to make it like a game where you should make it like a game where there is a little bit you're going to have a bit more time to set up and react and think clearly because I mean when you're at, when you're sitting in the red and you're taking that many shots you're obviously not going to think that clearly you're not going to make as many saves you're not going to make the right decisions and now we're just now we're just making bad calls and and making saves um I mean and when I mean when, and when it comes to the to the practice layout and all that stuff I mean like we all know and like we've we've talked about and and I think the again that's the biggest thing we can impact when I think when it comes to coaches is obviously we're starting with a warm up and you're starting with skill development and your speed work at the beginning. And then yeah, from there, like you guys have both said, maybe we're doing small sided games and, and what have you. I know for for us and uh when I was coaching lacrosse and coaching wrestling, the the two biggest things we did, I'll speak for lacrosse, is 
we started, I mean, the first 15 minutes were just speed work basically. And whether it was say shots on goal or what have you, but it was full speed uh, sets, but there may not have been a goalie in the goal. I mean, it was all skill work and, and fast paced stuff. Uh, and then when it came like for wrestling and wrestling is a different beast, but you know, I've, and I've always thought that wrestling coaches naturally uh, prepare and write their practices probably better than any other coach, sport coach, I think, just just because of the way that you have to teach the sport and that you're really having to teach a this uh, library of moves and situations mm-hmm. because nothing is ever really planned and I got to react all the time. So it's really more of teaching this big library of stuff. And so with wrestling, you're you're kind of naturally starting with, say, skill acquisition first. Uh, then you're starting with kind of tying some moves together. Then we're going live for short bits. Then we're going full live. Like there's just ways that it builds in, uh, which you can apply the same to hockey or any other sport. But I have always thought that wrestling does an exceptional job of that compared to compared to most sports. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I'd agree with that. Anything else to add to that, Blair? Oh, I was just gonna say, you know, talking about the the battle days and the small the small area games. Ross brought up a great point that it just clicked and reminded me. You know, full ice drills. I never really got that tired. Sometimes, mm-hmm. but not usually. And then when we would do the small area games, there'd be a lot of players standing around, and I would be dead after ten or fifteen minutes. Because yeah. I was getting shot after shot, and I would be in the red. You know, we didn't have the heart rate monitors at that point, but I could tell you, right now I was in the red, and my legs were burning, and I was looking for a, a sub if I could get one. So, you know, obviously it's not something that you can do all the time. It's something that you have to use and use wisely, and that's why you know that would be a Wednesday thing because then come Friday game night, I'm rested again. Thursday is a little bit easier. We're doing power play, penalty kill, a little bit more, you know, technical stuff um, to ease into the weekend. But um, that was, a, I thought that was a good point, Ross. And having seen some of the wrestling's practices, <laughs> I would say that they are dialed in. And, um, you know, being able to, and it might not be every wrestling coach, but just the ones we've seen, but um, being able to go from, you know, specific you know, parts of the skills and bringing it into that full, you know, movement and, and the full, uh, I guess like match, uh, wrestling, you know, movements, whatever you want to call it. I'm not the wrestling guru, but, um, going (laughs) from specific to, (laughs) you know, actually wrestling is, uh, probably a smart way to do it. Our volleyball coach at our high school, He's the he's the only guy that has asked me about about practice planning and laying out his practices, mm. and uh, he's also a pretty good coach and he runs a pretty good uh, organization. But uh, I was asking him, and we and we were just talking about it, and he naturally already lays out his practices in essentially high, medium, low, and goes in blocks of time of. All right, this block is a wow. low period, you know, a low period for 10, 15, 20 minutes. Then we've got a, a medium intensity period. Then we've got a 
high intensity period for, mm. you know, five, 10, whatever, you know, however many minutes it is, but he just cycles through for X number of time, depending on what the drills are. Um, and that was, and I know Chris, I think we had talked about it at one point when I, I went to another, one of the, one of the high school family days and the coach mm-hmm. was talking about research from, uh, the jump. I don't remember what it's, I think, I don't remember what it's called, but it's a little jump thing that goes on your waistband and might just be called yeah, jump yeah. or vert. And, um, the most impactful jump or thing that a volleyball players does is a jump serve. And it's because when they're doing yeah. a jump serve, they're throwing the ball up and then they're looking up at the ball to hit. And then they're landing without looking down, preparing to land. And so they're not like absorb, they're not absorbing that, that jump as well as they do versus, all right, I'm going to go spike the ball and they're kind of prepping to land. So a jump serve is the most impactful thing that a volleyball player does. Well, normally with most coaches, the when they are trying to do a low easy period, they are they're doing jump serves or they're just serving because that doesn't seem like a, a stressful thing or an impactful thing because it's just serves. I'm not digging the ball, I'm not doing a bunch of jumps, I'm just sitting back here and I'm serving. Where if you get a bunch of girls and they just did 30, 40 jump serves. That's super, super stressful. And that was something that I had mentioned to our coach. And he and he was like, man, that actually makes a lot of sense. But and they didn't really do a bunch of that on their high blocks, but he was like, Okay, I'll you know, I'll think about it as far as when I'm setting stuff up. But yeah, long story short, he does he naturally had done that in his planning, so there really wasn't any fixing, but he was trying to trying to figure out a, a way to get better. I was like, no, man, that's, that's pretty good. I've watched your practices and they look pretty solid. So let's keep trucking. Yeah, that's, that's pretty high level. And I think, I think as the performance side of things, we could have such a tremendous impact on the practices, talking with the coaches of just saying like, Hey, this is perfect. Put this here, put that there, consolidate some of your uh, stressors in this way here and lay out a great practice. Like I think of what you did at Liberty with Heath and the swim team, Ross, it was beautiful, right? You kind of brought in a track and field sort of perspective to a sport that's typically just uh, you know, yardage and yardage and yardage based, like actually sprinting with sprinters. And yeah, if we could get those relationships with more coaches, I think it'll be beneficial. So at this conference, after a presentation, if they were talking about whether it was a, a certain skill or a certain small area game, I'd kind of lean over and say, Hey, that'd be perfect to implement on this day during this time of your practice and kind of get the, the sport coaches thinking more on that, you know, skill acquisition, energy system development type of path that we have in the weight room. Hmm. Talking uh, small area games a little bit more. I wanted to highlight one of the speakers. So, the setup at the coaches site live was it was really good. A lot of conferences that I've been to, there's multiple speakers going on at the same time, which I don't love because I want to go there. I want to hear everybody if I can. So they had some speakers kind of give almost like a mini TED talk. It was like 15 minutes or less. Other speakers got 30, 45 minutes, an hour or something like that. I'm not sure how they kind of broke that up, but one of the coaches uh, was Kim Weiss hope I'm saying that right. And she coaches for the Maryland black bears 
in the North American Hockey League, which is a tier two junior here in America. And I thought her presentation was unreal. So she showed losses that they suffered in overtime. And then she showed the drills that they're going to do to kind of fix that. So apparently there's a stat where like if you make five good passes in hockey, it leads to a good goal or shot opportunity. And she showed how in overtime it's three on three and they did have statistics to show that they made those five good passes, but they're all in kind of like the outside or the, the perimeter of where you want to be to take good shots. So then she showed their two drills of how they were going to fix that and things they were going to implement to make those changes for next year. I just thought that was unreal, but more on those small area games as I was personally watching them, it kind of let me see where we are beneficial. So one of the coaches from the NTDP was showing a small area game to work on creating time and space. And this is something that uh, Kier talks about a lot. I, I think with to have good shot or scoring opportunities, you need time and space. Well, to create that time and space, you need good acceleration. And what are some of the key components to good acceleration? Good feet, good ankles, good shin angles, and good hips. So I think for us as coaches, if we could watch some of those small area games, we could see or at least understand coach language and player language better to say, hey, when you need to create that time and space, you need to be able to drop your hips. You need to be able to get your ankle bent here. You'll project further. You'll create more separation. So that was kind of a, a big one for me as all these hockey coaches are going through their small area games, drills, or what what have you. I would see like, okay, I can make an impact right there, getting them to the puck a little bit faster. So yeah, just kind of a, a nugget there for you boys of like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Kind of watch watch those small area games, see where we could speak the same language as the coaches and the players and get get more buy-in for what we're doing. Yeah, the players definitely have to have the awareness of where to go and everything, but then where we you know, the value is with us is now that first, second, third step is a little bit quicker. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I had a coach say, by your sixth step, you should be at full speed. Mm-hmm. And that's on the ice. I don't know what what they say for, uh, you know, track or on the field, but that always kind of, I don't I remember that from when I was like eight, but, <laughs> but it, yeah. it always rang true. Like, I mean, I, I would be in my goalie equipment, six steps, I'm, I'm full go. Mm-hmm. And then talking about the, the five passes, one of the, yeah, please. when I was uh, younger too, I got called up to play with the team and they were really good. Like they were um, one of the top triple A teams uh, in the OA, uh, in Ontario um, for the year older at the time. And uh, I just sat on the bench, but I was in the locker room with them and the coach who was really solid. He had no, like he had goals for each period. Obviously he wanted like 10 shots a period or something like that. But what he wanted at the end of the game was 90 passes. It's the only time in my whole life I had ever heard a coach have that as a goal, but he wanted 30 passes a period. 
and like quality passes, not just like a, you know, chip off the boards and somebody skates to it. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but he wanted tape to tape guys making good passes. And at that point I hadn't seen the team pass as well as this team had. And just having it as a goal. And it wasn't like they were trying to make, you know, stupid tippy tap passes to, to try and get the, the number. Like they were, dialed in, you know, tic-tac-toe passes that, you know, were, were giving them more opportunities. So I, I yeah. just thought that was interesting. The, the five good passes, um, that's what I thought. Well, of. If, if you think about it, the your offense, your job on offense is I'm trying to obviously create space, but I'm also trying to create chaos. I'm trying to create chaos for defense. Like I'm trying to keep them not knowing what's happening where defense is trying to close space and control whatever you're trying to do. They're trying to prevent chaos. So if I am passing the ball or doing more ball movement, it's going to be a bit more chaos. They have to react versus controlling everything. And I think that's a, if I think when you're teaching any sport, particularly younger kids, strictly from an offensive and defensive side and understanding that that's what essentially the goal is, is to create space, get room, create some chaos in terms of offense. Defensively, I'm trying to close space, keep it under control, not let them move the ball. And then obviously transitions a whole different ball game. But if you can at least understand that concept, if let's say I'm on offense and I understand that that's what my job is, and then I understand what the defense is trying to do, I can make better decisions in order to make better passes and to hit those marks and whatnot. But I think that's a really interesting thought as far as number of passes, because it makes a ton of sense. And it's, and you can apply that to any other sports because that's something for, for wrestling where it's, Hey, you're trying to make, oh. you know, X number of attempts or shot attempts or this and that and the other uh, in a period you know, there are, you know, there are different drills you can do where it's like, Hey, you got to have, you know, this many points or this many shots or what have you in a, in a period of time. And something that I know that I always preached, uh, with my team and my kids was just tempo and it was just pressure. And it was always controlling that because it's particularly in wrestling, man, if you're not controlling the pace and you're defending, it's, it's bad. It's not good. And you don't want to be reacting but just keeping pressure, keeping tempo. But yeah, no, that's a, I really like that concept. Soccer, European football, whatever you want to call it. And the <laughs> amount of passing to try yeah. and create some sort of chaos and move the ball up the field. Like sometimes Great it's just example. irritating, but yeah, there's a prime, prime example. Yeah, Go that's ahead, a good one. And, and this, uh, this presenter, Kim Weiss, she just had so many good statistics. Like, Ross, you would have loved it. Um, just, like, stats for days that she went out and found on her own between uh, the NAL, USHL, NCAA, and NHL. Just, like, hey, these five good passes. But kind of moving on now, something that every single coach hammered was you must have competitions, right, from – uh, U14 AAA coaches all the way up to your guys in the NHL or uh, Europe who are winning championships. You must have competitions and you must keep score in practice. And 
that's something I totally agree with. I've, I've said to some of our coaches before, I don't think it's a novel idea, but I did think it was interesting that almost every single coach at this big time conference said that. So takeaways for you guys, have you applied that or seen that in other sports? Uh, Blair, was that a thing for you growing up or playing and coaching in hockey? And Ross, what about you for the the sports that you've coached or uh, with coaches that you've worked with? Yeah, I don't want to shoot myself in the foot here, but um, in practice, probably <laughs> some probably some of the the practices where I gave the most effort was when we were having you know a shootout at the end of practice. Mm-hmm. You know, there there's prime time competition and something you don't see a lot in games, but that was one of the things I had the most fun with, and I wanted to try the hardest um, playing you know scrimmages and stuff. It's the most game realistic. Probably when I tried the hardest too. Don't want to lose, you know. With Liberty, we, we, when the season was over and we we're having fun, we were playing Canada versus USA. Well, oh, yeah, th- those were some of our most serious games and playing against each other. And you know, nobody wants to lose that game. We kept track of the score of the game and we kept track each practice who was up, like a Canada US series. So, yeah, you know the competition stuff even if it's just, you know, pointless, it really does make a difference to the level of um, the ability that, I guess, how hard guys want to try, how motivated they are to to put forth their best effort in, in a practice. And, I mean, the harder you're trying, the, the better you're going to get. So. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, I mean, if you you're you're measuring what matters at the end of the day, and if you're, yeah. if you care, if you care about it, you're going to, you're going to measure it. And that can be for us jumping, sprinting weights or whatever. It can be in practice. Something that when I was at UVA, uh, they did unbelievably was, uh, scoring offense and defense the entire practice. And like, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, you know, touchdowns and not touchdowns. I mean, it was, you were getting, defense was getting points for rushing the passer, for a blocked ball, for an interception. Like, they were different things, getting different points uh, the entire practice. Offense would have been the same way of, you know, X number of yards, touchdowns, this and that. And the whole entire practice has just kept a kept a, a score. And, you, I mean, practice, you would, it would be like in the 80s and 90s of, of points. But the point being was, Anytime there was a live period, something was getting getting scored. And if you can, I mean, shoot, man, if you can put that into any practice and figuring out a way to create a scoring system that benefits both both offense and defense, I think that's going to be the best way to do it. Because again, I mean, you measure measure what matters. Yeah, I'm trying to. So, Kara Mori, she was the. University of Princeton's uh, women's hockey coach and she was just all about competition uh, on ice off ice wherever however and her thing was like it just develops grit right if you're always competing it just kind of sharpens you like a sword and so I can't remember if it was uh, from Kara's presentation or another one but I wrote out somewhere have competition in the weight room Right. So 
split the team in two. Hey, whichever team has the most PRs on their broad jump today is going to win whatever. Hey, whoever jumps the highest or gets the closest to their PR today, whoever, uh, you know, a, a team of four, whoever runs the fastest today uh, wins whatever. So, yeah, it just really got me thinking of like, okay, athletes are so motivated by competition. They want to compete. Athletes do not like to lose. So what are ways where I could bring that sort of competition level into the weight room, elevate the intensity, and just make it more fun, make it more special? So, yeah, that I forget which speaker really got me on that. It may have been uh, Kara Mori from uh, Princeton. Well, I can tell you when I started letting kids uh, write each other's sprints down, that was that was game <laughs> over. Like, one, it keeps a bit of honesty, obviously. Uh, two, uh, when we doing when we're doing the sprints, you'll have, I mean, three or four kids will be at the iPad when one kid's going, um, and the, and obviously they're going to see what they ran before. They're going to see their PRs and, and trying to see, hit different numbers, but that competitiveness i mean like i had it i had an athlete today uh who was just distraught at the fact that another athlete was running faster than them oh yeah i mean distraught and trying to explain the situation and they had they had never literally we had never even done it before and it was like it doesn't matter what your times are and uh Mm -hmm. and this and this particular athlete is 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 very fast and they are they've proven to be fast at longer distances we were just doing zero to ten today and okay so those first couple steps like if you're great at it you're going to be a little bit faster and it was interesting as a sidebar that the fastest athletes were not like in a typical longer sprint were not the fastest in the zero to ten uh at least today at least today and so making that point. Uh, but nevertheless, the competitiveness there, just when they're looking at the sprints or even in the jump mat, the same idea. Uh, like if in, in a perfect world, I would have a TV going and I would somehow be able to, to have either a leaderboard or something, uh, actively with every single kid on the leaderboard on the TV, just constantly moving. And I don't even know if that's possible, but it would be awesome if it was. Uh, but being able to do that would be huge. I remember uh, just doing the last like three minutes of my workouts uh, at Liberty. I did head, shoulders, knees, and toes. Yes, a, hand, a handful I of did times them last week. And it, you know, it's just a goofy thing, but you know, it gives a little bit of competition in the weight room. And man, I remember with the swim guys. Like, I think there was kids who were there for the workout who just wanted to be there for head, shoulders, knees, and toes. So funny. <laughs> um, but, I mean, something as simple as, as a little competition like that, you know, it, it, it creates some more buy-in for the weight room. Guys have fun with it. And mm-hmm. uh, they, they leave the weight room having had a better experience, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll... It'll take some planning and organization on my part, which is definitely not my strong suit, but yeah, trying to find ways to inject a little bit of competition in there. That could be pretty fun. And it could just be like a, Hey, you win $10 of flames cash. 
like type of prize, right? But people are going to battle for it. And just a quick side note, when you're talking there, Ross, on the zero to 10 being slower for some of your faster people, uh, 1080 has an update that you could run a force velocity profile uh, on your athletes now, just like there on, on the machine and with the tablet attached. So that's pretty exciting. I don't have to go into Excel sheets and plug in all these crazy formulas. So some must some, be nice uh, information to follow on that. Yeah, no, it's great. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, it's it's pretty awesome. For uh, this conference here, what? Because yes. I've been to enough conferences and things with you that I just let you ask questions because you're gonna ask yeah. enough questions yeah. to get to whatever I'm probably curious about too. And it's probably said in a much more eloquent way than what I'm going to say. What did one, uh, did you get a chance to ask people really good questions Two, What were the main questions from the other hockey coaches to each other that were not like an X and O's related type of thing? Yeah, no, that's uh that's a good question. So that's what I like about certain conferences where the presenter says something, I can raise my hand and just get the answer right then and there. So there were a bunch of times where I wanted to do that, but this was not the uh, mm. venue and it was not the kind of setup to be asking questions in, in the middle of it. Cause every presenter was like on a tight clock. Like if you went up there with the 15 minute time slot, they like, shot at you like you have three minutes left uh stay on the carpet like you got to keep going here don't uh don't veer off so i didn't get to ask a lot of questions during it but there were kind of like the in the hallway or social times and i didn't want to ask the head hockey coach a bunch of off ice type of questions so my main ones that i wanted to know was what makes you special what makes you different so I was asking every coach, what's your thing, right? So for Bill Belichick, you could say it's defense, right? He's always been able to throw a great defensive scheme together. For Phil Jackson, you could say it's the the triangle offense, right? Uh, for other coaches, they have their thing. And what's crazy is a lot of coaches said their thing was film. Like they were amazing at watching, cutting film, and breaking things down. Oh, one coach specifically said, if I have 12 periods of film to watch on a team, they will not beat me. And I was like, oh, all right, well, that's pretty good. And uh, another good one was establishing relationships with your team. So a lot of coaches were kind of giving me their opinions on on how they do that. Simple things like, hey, how how how's your family? How's your wife? How's your kids? Or... Hey, how's school going? How's that teacher? And trying to get touch points with with each and every uh, each and every athlete. And then uh, your second question, it was all kind of like hockey talk. Mm -hmm. And so I'll I'll just use our Liberty coaches for an example. So we had uh, four of our Liberty coaches there, uh, Liberty hockey coaches. And after a presentation, a lot of them would be like, "Okay." How, how are you going to implement that next year? Or what was your takeaway from that, that you're going to modify something with or for. And so that a lot of that was kind of like coach talk, which a little bit was over my head and 
a little bit, I was just like, all right, I don't really, really care, mm-hmm. so, so to speak. But yeah, that I'll, I'll just kind of leave it there for the what our Liberty coaches were talking about. But they they would kind of just ask each other, what'd you think? How, how are you going to do that? Did you like it? Did you not? But for the most part, everything was positive, right? Like when you have a, the, uh, I, I want to call him the like penalty kill coach for the Vegas Golden Knights up there. You're, you're going to go like, Oh, that was really good. You know, it just kind of is what it is. Yeah. Was there anything that really like blew your mind or blew their mind? I should say, uh, like I know when I go to a conference, I guarantee there's at least like one thing that I'm like, all right. Like first time I heard Dan Victor talk, I'm like, okay, this is a little much. Yeah. <laughs> this is different. Yeah. So what I think blew their mind a lot was some of the skill based drills and then how to implement them during a practice. And even for me, I was like, dang, man, these guys are unreal. So hockey, I don't I don't know if this is across all sports. It's kind of a wild one to me where you have your head coach who's like the technical, tactical-ish type of guy. And then you have your power skating coach because skating is so important. And then you have your skill coach because passing, shooting, stick handling is so important. And so you kind of have not necessarily silos, but you have different kind of like areas of uh, expertise. And so some of the skill coaches that were presenting, uh, half the conference was in an auditorium. The other half was in an ice rink where guys are on the ice, mic'd up and kind of explaining a drill with some players out there. Some of the skills that they had them doing and the equipment they had out there, a lot of our Liberty coaches were like, hot dang we're buying that we're implementing that and an area where i i was like pumping my chest was i've been saying for years split the ice into you have your blue line and in let's just call that the offensive zone you have your you know blue lines area your neutral zone and then you have your blue line and in defensive zone so split the ice into thirds most teams have three coaches have your coach down here working on this particular skill, your coach here on this skill, and your coach down here working on a different one. And finally, like they got to see it in action. I, I believe the gentleman was with Slip Skill Tech or Slip Skill Hockey, and he's a, a skill-based coach. And he just had these like phenomenal passing uh, drills. And he's like, here's what you're going to do in this section. Here's what you'll do in the neutral zone. And you'll do this drill down here in the uh, uh, offensive or defensive, whatever you want to call it, zone. And so that to them was like, holy, that is good stuff. And for me, it was kind of like, finally, yes, <laughs> let's do this. Come on. Because in, in 21 minutes, you could have three seven-minute stations where if you split your team into thirds, it'll be uh, – eight guys per station and that's just like tons and tons and tons of reps and your middle part could be stick handling and passing your other parts can involve a shot so that that was a huge takeaway for for the coaches there that's funny because that's like how every hockey camp ever is run (laughs) yeah (laughs) and it works yeah you know 
you can fit so much, get so much done in a week of hockey camp. And then we just kind of forget all this stuff for the rest of the hockey season. Yeah. I, I mean, I get it. Like logistically it's tough, but again, where I think we, as the performance, the strength staff can make an impact is when we have our very first workout of the year, it's just a shadow of what a, a workout will look like in six, seven, eight weeks right? Like first workout, Hey guys, this is how we RDL. And then seven, eight weeks later, it's, you're going to do an RDL, then come over here, do a jump, then go do a push, then go do a pole. So for the hockey coaches, I was like, you could have your three areas of the ice and they could all do the exact same drill. It's going to give them more reps. And then once they master that, put it down here in this zone, you don't even have to coach it. They know what they're doing. And then you could focus your attention on the you know, the, mm-hmm. the shooting offensive zone here and the neutral zone and implement two more drills and two more skills. So, yeah, I, we, we're really impactful, I think, if our, our coaches uh, utilize our areas of expertise in, in that way. I think, I think it's funny with hockey how far it's come along because the skill coaches and the skating coaches are – I'm not going to say they're like a new thing, but in popularity, it's a, it's a much bigger thing now. Um, mm-hmm. For a long time, it was just your hockey coach was your skill coach. He was your skating yeah. coach. And, um, and then goalie coaches became such a commonplace and mm-hmm. goalies were dominating the NHL scoring went down and all of a sudden the players got a little bit wiser, started getting better at skating more skill, yeah. more speed. And now these, you know, skill skating coaches are becoming way more common. Teams are utilizing them because man, that's what the game is now. You got to do it. And yeah, then now sure. score, now scoring's caught back up again. Um, but it was just that skill focus. Like that's what goalie coaches were. It was just totally Great skill point. focused. And yeah. Um, now, yeah, like, there's so many, so many good skating coaches, so many good skill coaches. And mm-hmm. if you watch an NHL game now, it's vastly different. The skating is so much better. It's crazy. Yeah, that's uh, that's something I've even noticed as, again, I'm just the dryland guy. I didn't grow up playing or watching hockey. But, man, like if we really have a good emphasis on the skating and on the small skill components – it only enhances everything else. Uh, and it, yeah, just kind of going back a little bit. It was interesting. One of our presenters said, it's kind of what you do without the puck now that separates you because the levels of skating and skill are so high that the IQ, what you do without the puck, um, is kind of what gets people to the next level now versus years later it was just if you're just the better skater or stick handler or shooter and again kind of relating it to us if you don't have the puck you're you have to be skating or moving fast so there's another area that we could kind of impact when people don't have the ball what are they doing off the ball or out of the play or kind of whatever but some kind of you know switching gears here some other things i want to get to uh here is 
we don't have to talk about this, but it's just a popular quote, and it was actually said twice uh, on different days. Your team does not rise to the occasion. They fall to the training. And I think that was just another good example of you have to have good practices. Uh, a coach from the SHL, Cam Abbott, was basically like, practice these bat- like worst-case scenarios in practice, right? Practice a guy breaking a stick. Practice uh, the the intensities or the pressure of you're down one and it's six on five. Practice those. Uh, you blow out a skate. What does that look like? And I think uh, coaches could take that and, and run with it. So like in wrestling practice, when you're, you're down by one and there's 20 seconds left, right? What's your, what's your go-to move in basketball practice and inbound where you're down by four and there's a minute left. Uh, I, yeah, I just thought that was good. Uh, and again, it was said twice, don't rise to the occasion, fall to the training. One of the last things I want to get into here though, again, one of the, a phenomenal presenter here, uh, the author, John Bacon, wrote the book let them lead amongst a bunch of other books this guy was like yeah i could just pick up the phone and call her brooks if i needed to and i was like oh okay you're a big dog i i get that but here here's gonna be my question for each of you and uh blair just because you're in the middle here i'll let you answer first and then ross you can answer second you can uh give a little background to it if you want but this gentleman, John Bacon, asked, who was your favorite teacher? Right? So from school, who was your favorite teacher? All right. And now I'll, I'll kind of ask a, a follow-up to it. And it was interesting. Like, he asked that question. And at this conference, you could tell a lot of people were, like, nervous because it was, like, again, like, oh, man, there's that NHL coach. Or, oh, man, there's that, like, you know, big time guy. Oh, that guy played over there, you know, 10 years in the league for me. I was like, I don't know who any of these guys are. So like, there was no, (laughs) no like pressure for me. Right. I, I could be like in line next to somebody and have no idea. Like, Oh yeah. He has like two Stanley cups. Um, so yeah, we're in an auditorium. There's like 300 plus people. And he's like asking this question and no one's answering. No one's answering. And I'm just like, I got to do it. And so I just like yelled out, like, Brian Brennan. <laughs> and I was, just, I was like, oh, no, I don't know any of these people. I don't care. Um, so, yeah, who was your favorite teacher? All right. So, Blair, uh, go ahead. Who was your, uh, you know, kindergarten through high school, even into college, whatever? Who was your favorite teacher? I, I got a tie. So, both, both uh, PE teachers, yep. of course. Okay. Go figure. Uh, Wayne Horrell. <laughs> was my grade seven, eight P slash history slash I think you taught something else too. Um, but just an awesome guy. He wore the same white t-shirts tucked into his track pants every day. And then once it was like, I don't know, like 75 or 20 in Celsius, something like that shorts, same white t-shirt. Who, sorry, Blair, who was the first teacher? His name was uh, Wayne Horrell. Okay. He was the man. And then uh, uh, in high school, I had the same PE teacher three years in a uh, three out of four years. And it was Mr. McKeelson. I don't know. I cool. can't remember his first name, but he was the best. Old awesome. school. Yeah. Legend. 
but uh, yeah, never forget those guys. And before I pass on the mic, I just want to, yeah. I was thinking about something. I don't want to forget, yeah, yeah. but um, the, the quote that you mentioned uh, about not rising to the occasion, mm-hmm. fall to the training, fall yeah. to the training. It reminds me of what we talked about uh, the other week where you mentioned that if you're training at 80% most of the time yeah. and you are playing at a hundred percent, you're going to run into trouble. But if you're training at a hundred percent and you've got to, you know, play at 80%, you're going to have no trouble. So it's just uh, the same idea, just a different way of saying it. And um, that's what I thought of when you said that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right. Ross favorite teacher. Well, since you mentioned your favorite quotes here uh, from looking at your little sheet that you put together, uh, I thoroughly, I wrote it down. I wrote down a couple, but the make no small plans. They lack the power to inspire men. I'm ready to just run, just run through a wall. So good. Just run through a wall right now. So good, right? And yeah, Yeah. that's like, I got to like remember. Yeah. I got to remember that one, things can't change uh as quickly as you'd let, like them to change sometimes and mm-hmm. i think that there are times depending on the people that you're around of that when you tell them your vision you tell them what your plans are they're like that that's too much mm-hmm. like it's too much i don't want that responsibility yeah you know i don't want to have that type of uh expect expectation but uh anyway that was a good quote uh i yeah, had yeah, that, that guy's on fire I had three. I've got three that are pretty okay. tied. Um, I got Mr. Colzar, the man, the myth, the legend. Okay. He did he did our CAD drawing class in high school. I had him for four years. I had him every year because you had like a right. pro, you had like a progression between your freshman to senior year, and you could only take his senior year class if you took his other three. And so by that by that time, it was only eight to 10 guys that would be in that class. Uh, but it was, uh, he's, he's a, he's a good man. He's, and we would always, uh, we'd always go out and eat lunch in his classroom or just with him. Um, cool. and just talk yeah. and all that kind of, all that kind of good stuff. So that, that was always really cool and, uh, really special. And so he, I, and I'll never forget it. We had like our awards ceremony at the end of the year for CAD drawing uh, like in front of the school and my man, my man teared up giving us awards. And I was like, okay, this is no it. Way. This is it. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, Mr. Colzar. Um, and then I had two, I had uh miss day who was now married and I cannot think of what her name is now. And then there's miss Raglan. One was the freshman. She was a freshman English teacher and the other one was a math teacher. Mostly just because they were super supportive. Um, uh, they weren't, and I can I can relate to this as being a teacher now and and working in a working in a school environment. And the same really went for for Colzar. Of they're not automatically uh, getting irritated or snapping on kids based off of behavioral things. You know, being super patient and having conversations and not just automatically trying to send a kid to an office for different things and, and having those conversations. And I think that goes a really long ways, uh, with, with any kid. Whereas 
if the, you know, the first time that they're in trouble or they do something, you know, that wasn't the best decision, you're automatically just trying to get them in trouble or write them up or whatever, you know, your relationship is shot because there's nothing there to respect in terms of when you do make that decision or, and, and whatnot. But yeah, those, those would be my three. Awesome. Good. So hopefully this doesn't backfire on me, uh, cause it worked really well. So, uh, John Bacon asks, who's your favorite teacher? I yell out Brian Brennan. And then he just like dials in on me. They had lights on, so he, he couldn't see <laughs> he's, he's staring me down, you know, even though he can't see my face. And then he asks, was he easy? Hmm. And no, nope. no, nope. Mr. Brennan was tough. He kept people accountable. He demanded excellence on his tests. He did not grade easy. Uh, his classroom was fun. It was exciting, but you had to learn in Mr. Brennan's class. So Blair of, of your, of your two, were they easy or did they push you? Never. They both they both both pushed. And they're always right. you know, while pushing, still also, you know, treating treating you in a way that made you wanna give your best effort for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like cracking well a whip and and uh and telling you you do your work. It was hey, like this is what you have to do. This is how long you have to do it. If you need help, I'll help you. But you can do it. Yeah. What about you, Ross? Were nope. were any of those three teachers easy? Yeah. No. No. That like like uh, Blair just said. I mean, you've got high expectations, and this is what you got to do, and it's kind of that simple to help you along the way. But standard is standard is the standard. Yeah. I thought that was just so profound, right? Your favorite teacher, I wrote it in in capital and underlined it. Your favorite teacher was never easy. Uh, Mm. And he was just speaking along the lines of uh, at your funeral, people will talk about your values, what you stood for and who you helped. And yeah, just as a coach, it's very, very fun to be the, you know, the fun, happy, you know, guy, but people want an inspired leader. People want somebody to hold them accountable, uh, to go to battle with them. And, uh, yeah, your favorite teacher, your favorite coach was never easy. They always, uh, as you said, Ross, the standard was the standard. They expected excellence. They, they pushed you. So yeah, that was a great, Great, great one for me. And I wrote down some of my uh, best coaches that I've had and that I've worked with. And they all had that same, same thing. They were not easy. Really interesting. I thought Um, with that guys, I I could talk for hours about all my notes here. Uh, You know, just looking at the, the Google doc we have shared here. I only wrote about four coaches worth of notes and that was only page three or four of 12. Uh, but I think that's a, a great place to kind of end here with kind of my, my big takeaways, at least that would relate to us and sports performance. Uh, I could tell you 
great systems for two on two and how to create time and space, but I don't think uh, <laughs> that that'll be too good for the listeners or anything. So I, uh, do you each want to kind of uh, either comment on the uh, your favorite teacher was never easy or just kind of a, a, a takeaway for you and we kind of wrap this thing up? Yeah, I'll just say those two teachers were, you know, unless somebody brings up somebody else, those are the only two teachers that I think of regularly, mm. wonder what they're doing yep. right now kind of thing and like, you know, that I would want to reach out and talk to. Yeah. You know, I think they left that kind of impact. Um, obviously kind of left a, a little leg- legacy as well. And um, some some good memories, some good stories too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, and Chris, I would say the just as far as your, your hockey conference and just a couple thoughts there of being, it's pretty important for us as, as strength coaches to not necessarily watch film, but at least know, know what the game is and know what people's strategies yeah. are and, and talk a lingo and being able to, to talk to coaches. And I mean, I think that was, some, that was something with uh, at Liberty and, and working with coach Castro that I know that he at least liked where you are literally talking the same language and, and being able to kind of apply it accordingly. That's always a good thing yes. when you can talk that language to a coach and talk it to a player and, and make it make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, fellas. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing how you, you could just learn anything from high performers, right? He, we just talked for an hour, 15 minutes about, uh, a bunch of hockey coaches getting together and speaking about hockey. But I think that's a good life lesson of no matter the subject, we could always learn from just high performers and people who want to better themselves and better other people around them. And I guess the closing thought is your, your favorite teacher was never easy. So uh, hold people accountable and set standards and expectations, provide feedback, and that's going to create a winning culture in the weight room and, hopefully for the team. All right, fellas. Good stuff tonight. Thanks for listening to another episode of Victory Over Self Radio. Episodes are available anywhere you listen to podcasts, and we also have videos and clips of each episode on our Victory Over Self Athletics YouTube channel. Like and subscribe, and let us know if there's any person or topic you'd like us to cover. We'll see you all next time.